It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode contains offensive language that may not be suitable for all listeners. If there's one thing you should know about me, it's that I'm a big music fan. You can find almost every genre on my playlist. For me, what makes so many artists' music special is the influence of jazz. Jazz is a genre of contradictions. It's flexible and structured, elevated and gritty, cerebral, and you feel it in your body. There's an inherent back and forth to it because jazz is best when at least two people are playing. It's call and response. The instruments are talking to each other. The best artists didn't find their sound alone. They found it collaboratively, through jam sessions with other musicians, where they could improvise and experiment with new styles. Jazz is a team sport. That's kind of what I love about baseball, too. A baseball team is like a jazz ensemble. Every player has a role to play. Sometimes they even have an instrument. In baseball, that instrument is a bat or a mitt, and they're always moving in response to one another. Pitchers are almost like soloists. At certain points, all the focus on the field zeroes in on them. Because whether or not the batter hits or misses, the real action of the game begins when that baseball leaves the pitcher's hand. And from there, the players set the game's tempo. Black baseball players like my grandfather, Turkey Stearns, set the tempo fast. Their style of play was quick, exciting to watch. It had to be, because this was a traveling road show. And when you're on tour, anything that jazzes up your act sells more tickets. And this style didn't just move tickets, it built careers. It was so unique and so unlike Major League Baseball at that time that it would deliver Negro League players like Grandpa Turkey the fame they always deserved, as long as they were willing to travel around the world to get it. From ABC Audio, this is Reclaimed, The Forgotten League. I'm Vanessa Ivy Rose. Episode 3, Call and Response. Here's a reminder of where we are in the story of Black baseball. In the last episode, you heard about what it takes to make a league. Root Foster, known as the father of black baseball, 
founded the Negro National League in 1920. It was the first organized black baseball league, and it jump-started the black baseball economy for team owners and managers. Players made money, too. Black athletes were seeing annual paychecks ranging from $1,200 to $4,800 a year. That's $18,000 to $73,000 in today's money. They were earning much higher than the average American, but black players' income was still only a fraction of what their white counterparts earned, regardless of talent. This was common in most career paths in America at the time. So league players side hustle, playing games in off-seasons and in-between games to supplement their income. They would travel within the United States and internationally, playing freelance exhibition games against other traveling teams. This was called barnstorming. Barnstorming games featured that high-tempo, hard-hitting style of baseball that Black players had developed before the Negro Leagues even existed as an official organization. Players hit hard, ran fast, and played off of each other in a way that went beyond baseball into theater. It was a game of more daring, more base dealing, more fancy ball handling. Why would you throw somebody out with a straight throw when you can do it between your legs or behind your back? And fans love that. That's Donald Spivey, a historian and distinguished professor at University of Miami. Players out back in the outfield would do the cakewalk and that sort of thing. Before games, they played shadow ball, which is imaginary ball. There's no real ball there. You know, they, they would put on these kinds of stunts, as we call them, to entertain the fans. Imagine sitting in the stands, excited to see your team play. They come out, and they're miming their pitches and hits, playing silly pretend games all for fun and show. Fans loved it. But the theatrics weren't the only thing that fans came for. Remember, the gentleman's agreement was still in place. So a major draw of barnstorming games was that they were the only time black and white teams would face each other. And they played on the fact of color. The Negro League All-Stars versus the white Major League All-Stars, that kind of thing, which would you know bring blacks and whites into the stadiums in huge Huge numbers to see the, these showdowns. There's not a lot of coverage of Negro League games in the archives. They weren't reporting on much, if at all. On the radio, in local papers, or even in teams' own records. And even when scores were recorded, they couldn't capture the energy of the games or how each point was earned. The story of barnstorming is like all the best ones. To know what really went down, you kind of just had to be there. You having a Super Bowl party tomorrow? Huh? Super Bowl tomorrow? Oh, we'll be, oh yeah, I'll be watching it for sure. <laughs> hey, yeah, okay, yes, who are you cheering for? <laughs> who you want Who's to the win? team? Pardon? Eagles? I, I mean, whoever. I, uh, I'm neutral, I guess. Yeah. There we go. Happy yeah. either way. Ron Teasley is 96 years old, a former Negro League outfielder, and from the D, just like me. In early 2023, 
I met up with him and some of his family members at a senior living facility. Even though he mostly lives here now, he still spends time at the home where he raised his kids. That's in another part of Detroit, and it's filled to the brim with his photos and mementos. Here at the senior living facility, there's a mounted TV featuring a slideshow of photos from his Negro League days. You can hear me trying to get a Super Bowl 57 prediction out of him. I figured, with the years of sports expertise he has, he might have a better guess than me. <laughs> May the best team win. All right. <laughs> Can't go wrong. Two black quarterbacks, right? Uh, so, that happy about that. Exactly. Ron started playing baseball young. The older players called him schoolboy. I love talking about the Negro League. It's uh, one of my favorite topics. <laughs> he grew up with the super fan of a dad. And his father would talk about the Negro Leagues with so much admiration. It became a dream of Ron's to play in them someday. So Ron started showing up to his local stadium. At a very young age, I started practicing with them. I think I was 12, 13 years old. I started practicing with them. And I think I was a bad boy, maybe or go for I go for things. And then pretty soon they would say, well, uh, we'll play catch with you and we'll let you bat and all that sort of thing. He'd run the players' bats, balls, or anything they might need. When teams played a local game and a player didn't show, Ron got asked to sub in. Ron was there, like there, there, when these games, the special style of play, and barnstorming were all happening. I also wanted to speak with him because he knew my grandfather. All right, well, first I wanted to thank you for allowing me to talk with you because, you know, not having my grandfather here in the present day, every time I look at you, I think of him. Oh, God. And it gives me an opportunity to actually have the opportunity to imagine what he would be like. Oh, yes. I, well, I can, I can tell you a few things about him. He's quite a, he was an idol here in Detroit. Well, well loved. He was well respected. And, and uh, growing up, we called him the gobbler. <laughs> I like that, the gobbler. The gobbler. Why did you call him the gobbler? Well, I think he had a lot of quirky movements when he played. Uh, he batted, he got a quirky batting stance. And we always thought his neck was a little long. But he, and he, walked, he walked in sort of an upright way. You know? Ron was much younger than Turkey, but they barnstormed together on a semi-professional team. Ron was at the start of his career, while Turkey's was coming to an end. A barnstorming tour that Ron remembers in particular took them through the American South. And we were scheduled to play games in uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, Kentucky. And so uh, we, we traveled together. Had a great time. We had a lot of fun together. That's a picture of it. Uh, Look at that. that. Perfect <laughs> timing. That's like. <laughs> the slideshow on the TV just flipped to a photo of Turkey. He has a classic serious face on, and he's looking directly into the camera, almost like he can hear us talking about him. It's just quiet but deadly. Yeah, yeah, quiet yeah, but that's deadly, right. that's him. Wow. <laughs> While barnstorming gave Negro League players opportunity to supplement their income, it also meant spending significant amounts of time in buses and cars, exposing them to racism on the road. We were playing a team called the Chicago Brown Bombers. One of the players on that team 
failed to say sir to an officer. And sure enough, they, they were uh, beaten up pretty badly. When Ron was 14 or 15, he took his first trip down south with a barnstorming team. His older teammates would tell him, when we get stopped, and it was always when, not if, you have to be very careful what you say. They were so concerned about me not saying the right thing that they said, well, what we'll do, we'll put him in the trunk of the car because he might say the wrong thing and we don't want to get beat up. Then they said, well, no, well, just, just, you be careful what you say. If they say something to you, just, just shake your head. For a car full of black men, a police stop gone wrong could potentially disrupt not only your barnstorming tour, but your life. It was sad, you know, some of the things that went on back in those days was, uh, it was a dark uh, part of American history, you know, and sad, you know. I, I could recall once we, we were traveling and they stopped us and they, they would ask you, where's Satchel? Satchel, as in Satchel Page. As players traveled far and wide, their names did too. Satchel had become such a barnstorming legend that his name could protect players like Ron thousands of miles away. And we would say, oh, well, he's going to, we're going to meet him at the park, even though that was not true. You know? mm-hmm. We would say that. And sometimes uh, they would give us an escort into the city. If you've heard of one Negro League player, you've heard of Satchel. Satchel Page is by far the star of stars of Negro League baseball. Donald Spivey wrote a biography on Satchel called If You Were Only White, The Life of Leroy Satchel Page. Satchel pitched on and off for the Pittsburgh Crawfords during the early 1930s. You know, Crawford, as in the Crawford Grill. That's Gus Greenlee's buzzing Pittsburgh bar we learned about in the last episode, the spot where all the jazz greats played. On Satchel's days off from the Negro Leagues, he would barnstorm across the country. He wore his own solo uniform with his name sewn across the front. His appearance assured that small town teams would get a full house. His fee was up to $2,000 or over $20,000 in today's money. Tickets for games that Satchel was pitching in would sell like hotcakes. His name's presence in the lineup was reassuring for his teammates. Negro League baseball players I interviewed back in that era, they would say, we compliment Satchel Page. We all love Satchel Page because he helped us to meet the payroll. You know, we got paid. Satchel played with my grandfather, Turkey Stearns, at one point. Satchel said granddad was, quote, one of the greatest hitters we ever had. But what people said about Satchel was that he had style. He called his pitches, you know, the bad dodger, the oopsie-doo pitch, and (laughs) the strikeout ball. You know, he had a whole litany of of names for pitches. And I think those are the kinds of things that made Satchel Page such a household name because he had that ability to communicate uh, with the public. His pitching was refined and one of a kind. But where that style came from, 
is bittersweet. When he was a child, he used to go hunting for birds with rocks, and he was able to knock sparrows out of the sky. Now, you know how small a sparrow is? Good grief. And he had that kind of ability. Uh, and that was very necessary in his family of 12 uh, for, for survival because he often made the difference in terms of them having meat uh, that night. And he was able to do that from nine years old on, hurling rocks. That arm would take him to some of the biggest black versus white baseball matchups in history. Like the 1934 exhibition game between the Rosenblums and the Crawfords. Cleveland's Rosenblums were all white, and the Crawfords, including Satchel, were a black team. This game would pit Satchel against famed white pitcher Dizzy Dean. Dizzy may have been good, but Satchel was better. The Crawfords beat the Rosenblums 4-1. to one. Again, this type of game wasn't sanctioned by baseball's white establishment, or as Commissioner Kennesaw Landis at all. The gentleman's agreement, that unspoken rule to keep baseball segregated, was very much intact. Dizzy Dean, he said it numerous times. He said, I don't understand why the majors keep these colored boys off of our rosters. And I quote him here, he says, if me and Satchel were on the same team, he said, we'd have the pin at one in early July and go fishing for the rest of the season until it's time for the World Series. But for Black Negro League players, the stakes were bigger than a World Series win. This was a matter of their physical safety. Would they get to the next stop on their tour safely or even alive? My grandmother, Nettie May, told me how KKK members would follow Negro Leaguers from city to city on barnstorming tours. If players managed to make it to their destination without facing racist violence, they'd be met with the realities of segregation. After hours on the road, any white-owned establishment that would even serve them a hot meal would make them enter through the back. And the beds that greeted them were infested with pests. Players covered their mattresses with newspapers and could hear the rustling of bedbugs moving underneath. Sleeping conditions were so terrible that these athletes, who probably had a game the next morning, would sleep sitting upright in a chair with the light on to keep the bugs at bay. This is one of the reasons that Satchel Page, early on, uh, switched to driving his own automobile. It avoided him having to stay in those chinch-ridden, Jim Crow accommodations. He could sleep in his car. In 1946, team owners bought Satchel a gift to help get him from game to game faster. A Cessna 142-seater plane, tagged on both sides with Satchel Page in cursive script. These kinds of things were a way of circumventing the humiliation that uh, not only the South, but much of the North as well, put up these barriers against Black folk. You could fly above it, but sooner or later you had to land, and the problems would, would start again. After whatever night's sleep they could get in those conditions, 
Black teams would make their way to rented baseball parks. They leased them from white owners at exorbitant prices, on days that white teams weren't using them, of course. Stadiums like the iconic Rickwood Field in Birmingham, Alabama, followed Jim Crow laws that required white announcers to emcee all games. One of those emcees was a man named Bull Connor, who later becomes the poster child for racism in the civil rights movement of the 60s. Most people don't realize that Bull Connor got his nickname Bull because he was a radio announcer, baseball announcer in particular. Theophilus Eugene Bull Connor would go on to be the future commissioner of public safety in Birmingham, Alabama. When the Freedom Riders, a group of civil rights activists, got off the bus in Birmingham in 1961, Bull Connor allowed Klansmen to beat the Freedom Riders with metal bars, pipes, and bats for 15 minutes with no police intervention. Some of his announcements mean, quote, unquote, look at that little nigger Ron, boy, just like monkeys, and this kind of derogatory epithet that that he used constantly. There were some places where players could barnstorm without facing this type of Jim Crow racism. Barnstorming wasn't just taking players around the United States, or North America even. Barnstorming made black baseball international. Though sometimes it did mean playing for a dictator. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you'd do with an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run, take a nap, read a book, or maybe show up for a friend? We often find ourselves wishing for more time, but the real question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The key to squeezing that special thing into your schedule is knowing what's truly important to you and making it a priority. That's where therapy comes in. It's not just about dealing with problems. It's about finding what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you've tried therapy, you know how beneficial it can be. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's a tool for learning positive coping skills, setting boundaries, and empowering yourself to be the best version of you. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part? You can switch therapists at any time at no additional charge. So whether it's finding that extra hour for yourself or embarking on a journey of self-discovery, therapy can be a game changer. Take the first step with BetterHelp and make your mental health a priority. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Reclaimed to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Reclaimed. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need and the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1937, Satchel found himself in a rut. Despite being a huge star, he was struggling to get a raise from his team owner at the time, Gus Greenlee. Suddenly, it appeared that his luck turned around. One day in April, a representative from the Dominican Republic tracked Satchel down and made him a new offer with a big price tag. This was an invitation of sorts to jump teams, as Negro League players often did, and come play for a big spender, one who would pay Satchel the type of money he could never make in Pittsburgh. There was one catch, though. The invitation came from a dictator, Rafael Trujillo. And while it was an invitation, it was one most people don't refuse. So Satchel Paige accepted. By 1937, two things were true in the Dominican Republic. One, baseball was a national pastime. And two, Rafael Trujillo was firmly established as leader. He ruled the country with an iron fist, renamed the capital Ciudad Trujillo, or Trujillo City, and his security forces were responsible for the killings of anyone who Trujillo considered his opponent. Ahead of his re-election campaign, and with baseball's popularity booming, Trujillo saw an opportunity to consolidate political power by dominating his opponents once again this time on the ball field. Donald Spivey knows the story. As Trio wants to maintain his dictatorial powers, etc., you want to show machismo, you want to show machoism. You did this by baseball. Challengers would come at you with a baseball team. So Trujillo puts together a baseball team. Well, there's no rule in the Dominican Republic about who you can bring in or can't bring in. So he sent a representative up north to the United States to get Satchel Page and some of his folks. And Satchel Page was back then playing for the Crawfords. He abandons the Crawfords and, and takes Cool Papa Bell with him and a bunch of other players, almost destroys the Negro Leagues. He got at least $30,000 to do this and to bring with him the players he saw fit, which would be a heck of a lot of money, certainly in that period. $30,000 in 1937's currency is over $600,000 today. And not only was the money competitive, but the travel and accommodations were fit for, well, star athletes. That meant no more cramped bus rides on an empty stomach. No more riding in fear of a heavy-handed police stop. No more sharing beds with pests. These offers were a barnstorming standard. 
plan for a dictator, however, was not. They go down there to the Dominican Republic, uh, and it's not as easy as one would think, right? In fact, it's pretty well tied up because the other groups bring in ringers from some of the great Latin American ball players. Satchel writes in his autobiography that Trujillo's soldiers were stationed around the field with long knives and guns in their belts. Satchel and his entire team could see their weapons. And before he walked out onto the mound, his manager told him, take my advice and win. It's no exaggeration in terms of the pressure put on him and others when, in fact, representatives from dictator Rafael Trujillo told Page that El Presidente didn't bring you down here to lose. El Presidente brought you down here to win. Even in these most dangerous of circumstances, barnstorming outside the U.S. gave Black players freedom they didn't experience within its borders. After the game was won, Satchel and his teammates returned to the best stores, restaurants, and bars in the capital city. None of them had any whites-only signs in their windows. There's power in going only where you are celebrated. For so many Black ballplayers, that was Latin America and the Caribbean. I've heard my grandfather barnstormed in Cuba and Canada, although I don't have too many details about what his travels were like or what he thought of those spaces. He was very introverted, so I like to think mostly he played ball and came straight home. Other players didn't want to come home so fast, though, and I can't blame them. When Josh Gibson, another Negro League great who barnstormed with Satchel Paige, went to Cuba, he wanted to stay. His team manager threatened to seize his house to get him to return to the United States. Then there was Willie Wells, a Black player who barnstormed in Mexico and Cuba. He wrote about his experiences abroad and said, I found democracy here. Donald Spivey again. Player after player told me this. Well, you go and you play in a place like Cuba, and they would stay at the National Hotel. And I must have interviewed, I don't know, 60 uh, Negro League players. They told me that, in fact, you were treated like a human being. There was no Jim Crow-ism that you had to deal with. You didn't have to go into the back area uh, to eat. There was no discrimination in terms of what room you could have. These were great, great havens. Now, it definitely was not a perfect haven. Racism was alive and well in Latin America and the Caribbean. But for star Black athletes who were insulated from racism by being American celebrities, I can see how it would feel like paradise, especially coming from the wintry United States where no amount of money could protect a Black person from segregation. I keep trying to imagine what it must have been like for these athletes who, for the first time, were being celebrated for who they were. What could it feel like to return home after an experience like that? How could Negro League players, Black men, truly call any space in America home? But for them... 
America was home. Through the Negro National League, they had learned to operate within the system of segregation. Through barnstorming, they managed to play and even thrive during the off-season. But that will all change. Black ball, that special world-famous style of play that had opened unimaginable doors for Black players like my grandfather, was about to become a relic of the past. All of a sudden, they come along and say, well, we're going to start taking your star players. You know, have people spit on you and call you names and spit on your wife when she's sitting in the stand just watching the game. It took until, I believe, 1959 for every team that was a part of the league at that time to integrate. Reclaimed, the Forgotten League, is an original production of ABC Audio. Hosted by me, Vanessa Ivy Rose. This episode was written by Iru Ekpanobi. The series was produced by Madeline Wood, Cameron Chertavian, Iru Ekpanobi, Camille Peterson, and Amira Williams. Our senior producers on this project were Susie Liu and Lakia Brown. Music and scoring by Evan Viola. A big shout out to our ABC audio team, Liz Alessi, Josh Cohan, Ariel Chester, Sasha Aslanian, Marwa Mawaki, Audrey Mostek, and Aaron Ferrer. Special thanks to Chris Donovan, Rick Klein, Eric Fiel, Anthony Fanick, Mara Bush, and of course, my mom, Joyce Stearns Thompson, and my aunt, Rosalind Stearns Brown. Laura Mayer is our executive producer.